Morning, everybody. Okay, uh, maybe what we can do is just, uh, I know Peter's prayed, but if we can just open up in a word of prayer for this. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be able to gather around your word and learn from you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts so that we can take these truths and make them our own and then act according to them. We also thank you for your mercy that you've poured out on us and we pray that you would be glorified here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the second and last installment of the sessions where we look at a plurality of elders as a model for church governance. By way of introduction, let me just start with the following. The New Testament has a great deal to say about the teachers and the leaders in the church. From a biblical perspective, they are ultimately responsible to Christ for the flock of God. Like I said last week, they are the human custodians or stewards of Christ's headship in the church. And so when the members of the local church submit to their leadership, the headship of Christ over the body is acknowledged. A biblical standard for leadership in the church is vital for the effecting of God's blessing on the church. On the one hand, a failure to adhere to the biblical standard has caused many of the problems that we experience in the church in the world today. And then on the other hand, an adherence to the biblical pattern makes for strong and unified leadership. And this will, of course, directly affect the strength, the health, the productivity, and the fruitfulness of the church. So the purpose of these two sessions last week and this week is to allow this biblical pattern for church leadership to be made clear, to come to light. And as mentioned, by aligning ourselves to this pattern, we acknowledge the headship of Christ over the church. So let me just first recap what we covered last time. I think you'll remember we didn't do a recap at the end. Um, and then what I'll do is I'll give you an overview after that of what we covered today, or what we will cover today. We started last week by establishing the significance of elders from a biblical perspective. We did this firstly by looking at their function and role. And we found that the primary function was to care for and oversee the flock of God. We also saw that preaching and teaching was a central function of the elder. They needed also to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, and that's like a positive activity, and also to refute contradictions on the negative side. We also saw that the elders are directly responsible to Christ for the flock, and that we are to submit to them as an acknowledgement of the headship of Christ over the church. 
After this, we then briefly looked at some incorrect models for church governance. And instead of sort of going into the detail and unpacking the, the minutiae of governance models, we rather focused on what the scriptures revealed on the topic. We saw quite significantly that in the Bible, the focal point with regard, with regard to church governance is the elder and then we looked at governance models in a more sort of generic sense and i listed the three things that we as believers should be looking out for one uh, where the elders were authorized by the church members and then two where the elders were authorized by the deacons and then three where there was a single pastor at the top you know almost with with ultimate authority once we were done with the incorrect views, we closed out the lesson by looking more closely at the biblical usage of the terms elder, overseer, and shepherd. And the pertinent conclusion that we came to was that elder, overseer, and shepherd are all actually the same man. What we saw was that the elder is who he is, the overseer is what he does, and the shepherd is how he ministers. And when you realize this, you also understand that the Bible does not teach any other higher earthly authority outside of the local assembly. The elders, as I said, are directly responsible to Christ for the flock. So, today, we are going to continue with lesson two. And there are basically two truths that we will be looking at. Firstly, we'll dive into the origin of the term elder by stepping through four things. Number one, the understanding of the term during the time of the Old Testament. And then number two, the understanding of the time of the term during the, the time of Christ. And then three, the introduction of the term into the church. And then four, we'll look at its usage in the New Testament scriptures. And then after that, we will confirm from the scriptures that a plurality of elders for governing the church is God's intended plan as laid out in the word. Firstly, we'll show that it is the biblical norm. And then secondly, we'll highlight some of the benefits of conforming to this biblical norm. Okay. So, Without further ado, let's get started. Um, what we'll do first, as I said, is we'll look at the understanding of the term elder as it's used in the Old Testament. Um, sorry. Moses in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, used the Hebrew word that we would transliterate zakain, or elder. 
and these elders, they were all men, uh, were 70 tribal leaders that were set apart by God for leadership of the nation of Israel in the wilderness. You'll see that I've provided two references there. I'll read uh, Numbers 11, verse 16 for you. Numbers 11, verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand with you, there with you. And I'll also read uh, Deuteronomy 27, verse 1 for you. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So, from these two references, we can see that the elders were known men. They had a status of maturity amongst the people. So much so that they were able to charge the people to keep the commandments. They provided that leadership role. Moses used them to communicate to the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And their responsibilities included, amongst other things, judging the people. I've given you Deuteronomy 1 from verse 9 to 18 there as a reference. But let me just read you one of the verses there. Verse 16. You can, sort of in your own time, go and read the whole passage. Deuteronomy 1 verse 16. This is Moses speaking to the people. Then I charged your judges, speaking of those elders mentioned previously, at that time saying, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. So judging the people was one responsibility. And another one was to lead the Passover. I've given you Exodus 12 verse 21 there. Let me read it. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to the families and slay the Passover lamb. So we see that it was also their responsibility to lead the Passover. This was a task of significance. You couldn't just have any old person leading the high feast instituted on the night that they came out of Egypt. Later on, when they'd come into the promised land, these elders were involved in the leadership of cities. I've given a few references there, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read them. The problem is that one needs to go and read the full context, at least the whole chapter of each of those references, to bring them into perspective. But you're welcome to go and do that afterwards. <coughs> but here they had, firstly, the function of decision-making, and then also to serve as magistrates and governors over the tribes. I'll read Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 there for you. 
you shall appoint for yourself for your for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment then lastly they also needed to apply wisdom in their day-to-day involvement in society and I'm not going to unpack that anymore you'll see that from those scriptures and so that brings me to the end of the section where we are dealing with the understanding and use of the term elder in the Old Testament. What we obviously see here is that these were intended to be men of integrity, who were mature, who were God-fearing, and who judged righteously. So now we'll look at the term as it was understood in the time of Christ, when he walked the earth. During this time, the elder, or the term elder, was a familiar term in Israel. In the Gospels, the term is used 28 times to refer to a group of spiritual leaders called the chief priests and the elders. I'm sure you've read that. I've given you a few references there, and you'll see one familiar one there with Judas in Matthew chapter 27. Verse 3, Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, it says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he, meaning Jesus, had been condemned, he, referring to Judas, felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So this group called the chief priests and the elders were essentially those who were considered to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, the nation of Israel. And then, both in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7, we see that the text makes reference to the traditions of the elders. Mark chapter 7 verse 5 reads, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? The elders being referred to here were the spiritual leaders or spiritual fathers who essentially passed down the principles that governed religious conduct in the land of Israel. They were effectively sort of equivalent to rabbis. So, although during the time of Christ, when, when Christ walked the earth, he had a decidedly negative outlook towards the chief priests and the elders, they were nevertheless seen by the people as the spiritual leaders of Israel. There was a sense of spiritual maturity that was attached to the understanding of the term elder in that day. Okay, so we've covered the period of the Old Testament and we've looked at the time of Christ. Next, we will look at the introduction of the term and concept of elder 
into the church. Remember that the church was born on the day of Pentecost, and initially it was completely Jewish. It was actually entirely natural for the concept of elder rule to be adopted into the early church. What I mean to say is that although the primary meaning for elder is being relatively advanced in age, like Peter, um, the word brought along with it from the Old Testament the suggestion of dignity and maturity of church leaders, like Peter. As mentioned, the Old Testament elders of Israel were mature, God-fearing men of truth and integrity, and they had strong moral character and were full of the Holy Spirit. At least, that was the intention. It didn't always work out so well. I'll read to you the Exodus passage that I ref referenced there. Um, Exodus 18, verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And so, the sense of moral fiber is firmly entrenched here. And the Jewish understanding of the term elder incorporated all of that that I've mentioned above. So when they used the term in reference to New Testament church elders, it emphasized their spiritual maturity. Here's another thing. The term elder was the only leadership term that during that time was free from the connotations of both monarchy and priesthood. By monarchy, I mean kingship or emperorship. Remember in those days, they also used to practice emperor worship. So, so it's monarchy and priesthood. This is important because the apostles were teaching, sorry, regarding priesthood. So on the one hand, monarchy, but on the other hand, priesthood. Is important because the apostles were teaching that the church was a priesthood of believers. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2? It speaks of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. So the term elder was free from both monarchy and priesthood. It wasn't associated with those. And so the point is that there was no problem adopting this term into the church. And so that concludes the section on the introduction of the term into the church. And I just want to provide a brief survey of the use of the term in the New Testament. I obviously can't cover all the passages in the New Testament, so I've selected a few. The use of the term elder stems from the very earliest stages of the church. Remember Agabus the prophet? 
in the sort of latter half of chapter of Acts chapter 11, Agabus prophesies about the great famine. You guys remember that? And then in verse 30, Barnabas and Saul are charged by the elders in Antioch. So they are charged by the elders in Antioch to take the saints' contribution to Judea for relief. This is quite early in the life of the church. And already it indicates the presence of elders and that their authority is recognized. They charged Barnabas and Saul. They instructed them. Again, we see in Acts chapter 14 that a key step in the planting of churches was the appointment of elders. Just go, just turn there with me, please. Acts chapter 14, and then what I want you to do is turn to verse 23. Okay, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So do you see that every church plant had elders appointed in the church? So now page over to chapter 15. This is the chapter relating to the first church council, the Jerusalem council. And I see this chapter as pivotal in the book of Acts. So read with me just some of the pertinent verses. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Acts chapter 15, are you all there? Okay, reading from verse 1 and 2. Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So, we, so here we see that Paul and Barnabas being sent to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders to sort of discuss this matter. So now let's read from verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, verse 5, uh, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Okay, and, so, and then the chapter describes in some detail the process that they followed. And eventually you get down uh, to the bottom of the chapter 2, verse 22. So read from verse 22 with me. Acts chapter 15, verse 22 and onwards. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch 
with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And then you see verse 29, four things that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangle, strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So what we see here are the apostles and elders coming together over a matter of doctrine and then coming to a place of one mind. What does that mean? They all agreed with each other and then they determined the way forward. So I think it's clear from this chapter that the elders played a critical role in the Jerusalem Council. And then, as a last one, in the book of Acts, last one in the book of Acts, we can look at Acts 20 again. Uh, this is the same portion of Scripture that we had a look at last week. I don't know if you guys remember, verse 17, Paul calls to himself the elders in Ephesus. He calls them to the beach in Miletus. And the point here is simple. But it's important. Here we see that the church in Ephesus had elders. Plural. This is an important point. It's quite significant. Why? Because every church in Asia Minor was planted as an extension of the Ephesian ministry. A church with elders. Okay, so just one more. In 1 Peter, Peter writes to the elders in the churches of the dispersion. He names those churches Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All these churches had elders, and that's who Peter was writing to. We dealt with 1 Peter 5 verse 1 to 4 last time. In that block diagram. You guys remember that block diagram? Um, these were the same people. Okay. So that covers the origin and understanding of the term from the Old Testament. All the way through into the church age. So Old Testament, time of Christ, introduction into the church age. So let's get to confirming a plurality of elders as the biblical model for church governance. I will start with the fact that it's clearly the biblical norm. 
The word elder or presbyteros in the New Testament is hardly ever used in the singular form. I bombed down a number of references there. And seeing as this can be seen as sort of the heart of the lesson, I want to spend a bit of time just going through some of these scriptures. The first three references there, um, the ones in Acts, we've been to those before. So I'm not going to read them again, but you will see that each of those references, as we went through them, um, the, the elders, you know, it's always plural and masculine in its form there, whenever it re uh, refers to elders. So that's the first three. But let's take a look at the fourth one there. Let's look at Philippians 1, verse 1. And I'll read it for you. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, not Philippi, but Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now this verse uses the term overseer or episkopos but remember that it refers to the same man the elder and here again we see that it is in the plural and masculine form so there's no difference here let's have a look at the next one first thessalonians 5 verse 12 okay first thessalonians 5 verse 12 but we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. We see that the verse is describing a certain group of people. What group is this? The group of people who diligently labor among you and who have charge over you, which are obviously the elders. And although it's not so clear in the English language, in the original language, those descriptors are again in the plural and the masculine forms. Okay, so let's look at James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders. You guessed it. <laughs> plural and masculine. The elders of the church and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord every single one is in the plural form did I jump back now there are some exceptions but they are very specific and before I address these very specific exceptions I'd first very briefly like to take a look at a passage of scripture which is often used to argue for a single pastor model. I'm talking about the churches that are addressed in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Just go with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the first verse in Revelation chapter 2. Okay, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Okay. 
the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Now that word angel, used there in the first verse, is the word angelos in Greek. And it means messenger, or envoy, or one who is sent. And it gets used repeatedly when addressing the churches in Asia. In verse 8, you'll see he's addressing the angelos of the church in Smyrna. And then in verse 12, it's the angelos of the church in Pergamon, and so forth. Now that word also means angel, like an angel sent from God. In Greek, it's the same word. And so when the word is used in the New Testament, you have to look at the context to determine whether it's referring to an angel sent from God or to a human messenger or envoy. And so it's argued that here, in this portion of text, you see a single human envoy or representative being addressed. That's how some would argue. Indicating a single pastor model. But the truth is that it is not possible to prove from the text that Angelos refers to a pastor. And even if it could be proven to refer to a pastor, it cannot be confirmed that they were not representatives of a group of pastors. Which given what we've learned this week and last week, is a far more plausible possibility. So my point is that it's simply not valid to use the angels or messengers of Revelation chapters 1 to 3 to argue for a single pastor model for church governance. So, let me get back to the very specific exceptions to the use of the plural form of the word elder. The first exception is where the author of an epistle is referring to himself. Take 1 Peter 5 verse 1 there, for example. And I think uh, you need to turn there with me so you can read it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, you there? The elders, masculine and plural, which are among you, I exhort, who, are, who am also an elder, singular, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So we see that even in that verse, even though he refers to himself in the singular as an elder, he is referring to the other elders in the plural form. Okay, and then the other one, the second specific exception, is where a particular elder is being singled out. And I've given you 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 there as a reference. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, 
except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So you can see there that where it says accusation against an elder, it's making reference to a particular elder being singled out. So the fact is that the New Testament record always presents a plurality of elders when it is describing the church leadership of any church. It is the clear norm for first century church governance. And it's the only pattern that is found in the New Testament. You will not find in the New Testament a community that is ruled either by a majority position, you know, like church members or deacons ruling the elders, or a one-pastor model. Now, I'm not saying that it never existed. I'm simply saying that the New Testament does not have a record of this. It just isn't there. So, as a last point, I was going to say in closing, but uh, then you guys just stop listening. But as a, as a last thing that I want to go through is I want to shoot through some of the benefits of having a plurality of elders to oversee the local church. To start off with, a plurality of elders offers an important safeguard. I've given you Proverbs 11 verse 14 there. You all know it. Let me read it for you. Proverbs 11 verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And that is, of course, the truth. Where you have a plurality of godly men providing their counsel, there is proper guidance. And, that you, and you know that you can rest in the safety of that counsel. One of the things that it guards against is self-serving preferences. A singular pastor could very easily act in his own best interest, in opposition to what is best for the flock. Sometimes this is intentional, you know, where they are actually sort of nefarious motives involved, but other times it may simply be in ignorance because, you know, the old man, the flesh, is still clinging on. In the multiple elder setup, there are divinely intended benefits that are designed to build up the congregation. There is the benefit of the combined knowledge of spiritually mature men. There's a benefit of combined wisdom as these men seek to honor God in their conduct. And then there's the benefit of their combined experience in ministry. So it's that combination of knowledge, of wisdom, and experience that builds up the church. Another area where a plurality of elders is helpful is in the area of difficult disciplinary issues. A sole elder can be accused of having a personal agenda. It also mitigates against the dangers of self-styled despots. Now, a despot is 
someone, a ruler, uh, that has absolute power, an autocrat. In 3 John verse 9, where it speaks of diatrophies, there's an example of this, and you guys can go and read that yourself. We sometimes wonder, you know, 3 John, does that apply to me? Or oh, it's so short, you know. But there's a good example. The other thing is that one-man leadership is a strong characteristic of the cults and sects. And I'm not going to go into the details. We're running out of time here. Uh, but as I mentioned just now, a plurality of elders builds up and strengthens the congregation. So as we've seen, the Bible clearly lays out a standard for leadership in the church, which is focused around a plurality of elders. And as mentioned at the beginning of the session, a failure to adhere to the biblical standard has caused many of the problems experienced in the church in the world today. Conversely, a church which adheres to the biblical standard of a plurality of elders in leadership will experience the divinely intended blessings of what? What blessings? I mentioned them before. Strength, health, productivity, and fruitfulness. And that brings me to the end of the lesson. So instead of doing a full recap, just looking at the time, you know, of everything we learned last week uh, and this week, I want to leave with you with two main thoughts for you to take home. If you haven't been listening, now's the time to listen. It's just two thoughts. One, from a scriptural perspective, the elder, the overseer or bishop, and the shepherd or pastor are the same man. The elder is who he is, the overseer is what he does, and the shepherd is how he ministers. The second truth to take home is from a scriptural perspective, a plurality of elders to oversee and protect the flock of God is a biblical norm. Beyond that, there is no higher authority outside the local church. I'm done. Um, so we have a few minutes for Denver and Peter and them to field your questions. Thank you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that I have found. Uh, Denver or Peter, I don't know if you guys... So just for the recording, does scripture give any indication as to an optimal number of elders? Is two enough? Is 12 better? <laughs> no. No. Um, you don't want to? Okay. 
Yeah, no, um, I, I don't believe, look, I haven't in my studies found an optimal number. And I think, uh, I think that's intentional, actually, because in different contexts and in different situations, you will have different um, needs. Um, I have a two-part question. The first, <laughs> the first one is if uh, in the previous session we mentioned that uh, there were more elders than deacons. Is there ever like that you don't want the one to be more than the other for some or other reason? No, sorry. Yeah, carry on. Okay, no, you can answer that. Well, I, again, I do believe that they. I mean, look at LHPC. We've got we've got more elders than we have deacons, but. Um, I, I've seen churches where there are more deacons than elders. I, uh, I think, again, it comes down to the needs and the requirements. I think the important thing is, where people get it wrong, is that they give this majority rule. Um, you know, they, they implement that as a model for church governance. And then you find that, um, uh, you know, the number of deacons versus elders then becomes important, but I think it's based on, uh, you know, on the need. So Peter, I think, wants to answer your first part of your question. Just, just Peter, hang on. Just thank you. You said um, that that ratio is by needs and uh, situation, but it also depends are the men qualified in the church body to fill those roles. So you may say, well, this is a huge church. We need more deacons or elders, but you look around, you find that there may not be men qualified to do it. Or you may find that there's a lot of men that's qualified. Then you have a wonderful place of just choosing where you want to. So, yeah, it does depend also on qualification. And that's probably the primary qualification. Thank you. That's an excellent point because now you're starting to talk about the sovereignty and the providence of God in church. Um, my previous or oh, my next question is probably tied to the previous one then, but if there's anything you wanted to add on that, you maybe can. I wanted to ask, when does a church know it's they need more elders? Like, what indications would there be that they need? Like, because it's not it's not based on numbers we said now, but needs. But how? What? What would those needs be? Okay, I'm going to open that one to. So the establishment of elders is based on qualification. So whether there's a need or not, uh, if a guy qualifies, he gets installed as an elder. Um, there are often uh, greater needs for church eldership. And so in that case, a church looks outside when there's no qualification inside. And so then they get employed as elders within a given church. So it's both and when there's a need, but if there are men qualified, they should be appointed as elders. There's no reason to wait. Okay, our time is, what is the time there? Can you see? Two minutes. Two minutes? Yeah, let's, uh, can you, can you, you ask him personally? Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much.